Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. Supreme Court questioned whether Twitter can be held liable for aiding and abetting a specific act of international terrorism because the company allowed users to post tweets promoting terrorism. Well, some of today's oral argument coming up. Former President Donald Trump visiting East Palestine, Ohio, where cleanup continues from the toxic chemical spill and fire following a train derailment earlier this month. The former president, who is running again for president in 2024, criticizing the Biden administration response, calling it a symbol of indifference and betrayal, and also taking credit for the federal aid that is showing up, saying it's only there because he called for it. President Joe Biden finishing his visit to Poland and Ukraine with a meeting of the Bucharest Nine, the leaders of NATO members in Eastern Europe and the Baltic countries that have banded together to oppose Russian expansion. President Biden pledging to defend every inch of NATO and calling Russia's withdrawal from the latest nuclear weapons treaty with the U.S. a big mistake. We'll talk about the president's trip, the war in Ukraine, U.S.-Russian relations with a Heritage Foundation scholar, James J. Carafano. And the State Department says it's extremely concerned by levels of violence in Israel and the West Bank after an Israeli raid today in the West Bank killed at least 10 Palestinians and wounded over 100 more. And now to the Supreme Court. NBC News reports that the court appears unlikely to conclude that Twitter can be sued for aiding and abetting the spread of militant Islamic ideology in a case argued Wednesday concerning a Jordanian citizen killed in a terrorist attack. Relatives of Naraz Alasaf, who was killed in Istanbul in 2017, filed a lawsuit claiming that Twitter, Google, and Facebook were liable for aiding and abetting the attack under a federal law called the Anti-Terrorism Act. Wednesday's argument was the second part of a big tech doubleheader at the Supreme Court, where the justices wrestled Tuesday with a related case about whether Google-owned YouTube can be sued for similar conduct in connection with the killing of Noemi Gonzalez, a U.S. college student in the 2015 Paris attacks carried out by the Islamic State terrorist group. Unlike Tuesday's case, the Twitter case does not concern Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the legal shield that protects Internet companies from liability for content posted by users. That summary from NBC News. C-SPAN covered the Supreme Court oral argument in this case, Twitter v. Tame, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor here questioning Seth Waxman, attorney for Twitter. There is a focus on... Um, how much your platform helped ISIS and less on how much you actually helped them. And that there is a difference between the two things, and I think that that's the difference that you're trying to point to, which is in a neutral business setting, using something that is otherwise not criminal, a platform, to communicate with people, and you're doing it not by, is it as in the bank situation or in the pharmaceutical situation, to help this particular person commit a crime, but in a general business situation that others are coming to you and you can't find them ahead of time, that that doesn't constitute substantial aid. That's correct. It doesn't, it doesn't, the, the, you know, the case law and the restatements, you know, make, and, and Halberstam itself makes clear that the culpable, 
the culpable conduct has to be, to quote Halberstam, knowing action, knowing action that substantially aids tortious conduct, or as the restatement third says, active participation doesn't constitute, uh, active participation is what substantial assistance means in the absence of an external legal or fiduciary duty to act, which is not alleged here. And we know it's, it's a so fundamental principle of- So how do you answer Justice Alito's question? How do we decide that as a matter of law on this complaint? Write it for me, if as you were going to write it, that this is not substantial assistance because- Where the culpable, where the alleged culpable conduct is the failure to do more to prevent misuse of widely available services offered to the world at arm's length subject to a enforced policies against terrorist content. It is not, as a matter of law, the knowing provision of substantial assistance to an act of international terrorism absent specific knowledge of particular accounts or posts that were used to plan, commit, or proximately support the act of international terrorism that injured the plaintiff. Seth Waxman, attorney for Twitter, questioned by Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. In today's case, Twitter v. Tamna. Later in the oral argument, the attorney for Tamna, Eric Schnapper, given this hypothetical by Justice Neil Gorsuch. Go back to 1997, CNN did an interview of Osama bin Laden, a very famous interview uh, of him. Uh, could, under your theory, uh, and that, that interview became where he first time declared war against the United States uh, to a Western audience. And uh, that interview became famous, tool for recruiting, notoriety. Uh, could, under your theory, CNN have been sued for uh, aiding and abetting the September 11th attacks? I, th I th it would probably fail several elements, I think. Uh, which, general, which ones? Well, I think general awareness of its role. Um, it general, you don't think they were generally aware of his role when he declared war against the United States and said, no, I, 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 that seems, the, the, and that was known beforehand. That was the first time he did it to a Western audience. The, the standard is, whether they would have necessarily understood the role that the that the interview would play. But look, the First Amendment is going to well, solve that. I'm sorry. The First Amendment is going to solve that? And I, I think the First Amendment would solve that problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but the liability under this statute, but for that, uh, there would be liability under this statute? It's, it's difficult to see how it would get through the six elements of substantiality in terms of um, duration, it's one interview in terms of um, nature of the assistance, which is just a, a television interview. Um, the, um, it, it, there would, I, 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 think it, I think it usually would not, um, but, but I think the First Amendment would, would be a- Different, different tack. Just more generally, yes. I think you've heard um, Mr. Waxman and Mr. Needler talk about businesses that provide services uh, on an arm's length basis to a variety, all comers and not on a 
favorable basis. Uh, so how uh, does that involve aiding and abetting a particular act when even though you know, okay, this person's a bank robber, this person's a terrorist, they use my uh, communication services or whatever else it may be, uh, you don't know they're going to use it for a particular act. So how do you, how do you uh, get around that? And then the implications of that, I think, that they raise are this would put a heavy burden on a wide variety of businesses to try to ferret out uh, more information about their customers to prevent liability under this kind of statute. That's a lot of questions. I'm not going to get to. I, I, well, I'll do, I'll do, no, no, I, I don't mean the, to cut you off. I, I'll do the, the best I can. If I, if it's not responsive, just tell me. Yeah. Um, the general business. Yes. Uh, it's not connected to a specific act. Right. Why? Okay. Liability. Okay. So uh, first of all, it's our position, as I've said, that the assistance doesn't have to be connected to a specific act. Uh, nothing that um, uh, Hamilton did in Halberstam assisted any particular act. It was all after the fact. Um, with regard to it being a, a general... That wasn't the... I'm sorry to interrupt. But that wasn't a business of the kind that I was hypothesizing. Uh, yes, I understand that. I'm sorry if that wasn't responsive. Um, the fact that a defendant is a general business open to all comers uh, could be very relevant to knowledge. If someone just shows up and, and, and wants to um, uh, um, rent a pager or buy a pager or whatever the technology, um, it's, it's unlikely that, that the defendant's going to know that they're dealing with a terrorist. But there was a hypothetical that you know, Osama bin Laden walks in and says, uh, I'd like to buy a, a laptop with, a, with a, um, the capacity to maybe a, 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 a cell, satellite cell phone. And I think they would, they would know that this was going to be used for terrorist purposes. They wouldn't know the specific act. Our view is they don't have to know that. Eric Schnapper is an attorney for Tamna, relative of the person killed in a terror attack in 2017 in Turkey that led to the lawsuit against Twitter under the Anti-Terrorism Act that appeared before the Supreme Court today. You heard a reference to Needler, that's Edwin Needler, Deputy U.S. Attorney General, also arguing today's case. You can find the full oral argument in this case, Twitter Incorporated versus Tamna, two and a half hours long at our website, cspan.org. New York Times, referring to this case and the one yesterday, we mentioned that as a practical matter, the court's ruling in Wednesday's case could effectively resolve both cases and allow the justice to duck difficult questions about the scope of the 1996 law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides a liability shield for big technology companies. This is Washington Today. Former President Donald Trump, who's also a candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 2024, today visiting East Palestine, Ohio, which, as Associated Press describes it, is a village trying to cope with a toxic train derailment that has frustrated the residents and local leaders about the federal government's response to their safety concerns. Donald Trump holding a news conference with those town leaders and some first responders, along with a few Republican members of Congress, Representative Bill Johnson and Senator J.D. Vance. Here's Donald Trump. In too many cases, your goodness and perseverance were met with indifference and betrayal in some cases. Uh, Biden and FEMA said they would not send federal aid to East Palestine under any circumstance. They're not going to send aid. I thought that was a strange statement because I've been 
working with FEMA for a long time, four years, and they were great with us with the tornadoes, the hurricanes, and things like this. And it was a strange statement to come out, and they were doing nothing for you. They were intending to do absolutely nothing for you. J.D. and I spoke, and they said, they're not coming. They're not going to come. And I said, that's very strange. FEMA said, uh, specifically, this doesn't meet the criteria, and uh, that's horrible, and somebody has to do something for those people, I said back. When I announced that I was coming, they changed their tune. It was an amazing phenomena. The mayor and I were discussing that. It was quite amazing what happened. And they said uh, that we can't let this happen. That was a big change of face. J.D., did you ever see a change like that, Ron? That was a quick, rapid change. But we can't let this happen, they said, and we'll be there. And we opened up the dam, and. We got them to move, and they all came in, and they're now pouring you in with help. And I, I will tell you, I had a great, uh, a great relationship with FEMA. I found FEMA to be incredible, amazing in every way. Former President Donald Trump, now candidate for president in 2024 in East Palestine, Ohio, today. Washington Examiner article adding that Donald Trump has also attacked President Biden for traveling to Ukraine and Poland. In recent days to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine instead of visiting East Palestine. And while visiting with East Palestine residents, Donald Trump delivered a direct message to President Biden, quote, get over here. White House spokesman Andrew Bates saying in a statement to USA Today, congressional Republicans and former Trump administration officials owe East Palestine an apology for selling them out to rail industry lobbyists when they dismantled Obama-Biden rail safety protections as well as EPA powers to rapidly contain spills. The EPA administrator, Michael Regan, was in East Palestine yesterday announcing some new steps to, he says, hold the railroad accountable. And he talked about that this morning on CNN. Yesterday's announcement will ensure that Norfolk Southern pays for the mess that they've created. And so we are encouraging everyone, seek medical attention, ensure that the state and local health agencies understand those experiences because as we uh, force Norfolk Southern to take full accountability for what they've done, Norfolk Southern will pay for everything. And anything that we do, Norfolk Southern will reimburse us. They are the ones that caused this mess. They are the ones that are gonna clean up and fix this mess. Let me tell, ask you how that's going to happen. What have you done so far as the EPA administrator and the EPA at large uh, to push Norfolk Southern to do all of the things that you just mentioned to yes. take responsibility. Yesterday's announcement sort of laid out the fact that uh, we are transitioning from an emergency response phase, which was led by the state with EPA supporting the state into a cleanup, a longer term cleanup phase. Uh, what I announced using my legal authority, we can hold Norfolk Southern accountable. Number one, they will clean up every single uh, you know, uh, piece of debris, all of the contamination, uh, to EPA specifications and satisfaction. Number two, they will pay for it, fully pay for it. At any moment, if we have to step in because they refuse to do anything, we will do the cleaning up ourselves. We can fine them up to $70,000 a day. And when we recoup our total cost, we can charge them three times of the amount of the cost of the federal government. That is what the law provides for me. We're going to use the full extent of our oversight and enforcement to hold Norfolk Southern accountable. And they have to design a very specific work plan that's approved by EPA. 
So we're going to make sure that every single step is included. No stone is left unturned because the fact of the matter is they caused this trauma to the community and we're going to make sure that they pay for it. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan on CNN this morning following his visit yesterday to East Palestine, Ohio. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg saying earlier in the week that he would visit that town when it's appropriate. Word coming in now, Fox News and others reporting that he'll be there on Thursday. On Wall Street today, the Dow down 84, Nasdaq up 14, S&P down 6. Vice President Kamala Harris announcing today a plan to lower the Federal Housing Administration's annual mortgage insurance premium for most new borrowers of their mortgages by 0.3 percentage points. So it'll drop from 0.85% to 0.55%. And she says it'll save an estimated 850,000 home buyers an average of $800 per year. The vice president was at Bowie State University in Maryland. FHA loans were created to help lower-income families buy homes. And the way that it works is by insuring those loans against default. Because arguably, we're talking about folks that might be higher risk on the books. And so last year, millions of home buyers used an FHA loan. And we're talking about folks who are nurses, who are students, who are car mechanics, who are small business owners. They're the folks you know. 80% are also first-time homeowners. So it has been a very helpful program, the FHA loan process. But we also realized, after talking to folks, it's time for an upgrade because we have been traveling around the country and we've been talking with folks. And for too many, what we realize is the monthly cost of an FHA loan is still too high. That is why today I am proud to announce that starting on March 20th, we are reducing mortgage insurance payments for all new FHA homeowners by nearly 40%. And what this means is, on average, homeowners will pay at least $800 a year less on their mortgage. And that's $800 more in your pocket for household expenses. We expect that with this new approach, more than 850,000 Americans a year will benefit from this discount. Many will be first-time home buyers. Vice President Kamala Harris at Bowie State University in Prince George's County, Maryland today, joined by the Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Marsha Fudge, and Maryland Governor Wes Moore. The newest member of Congress will be Jennifer McClellan, a Democrat who won a special election Tuesday in Virginia's 4th Congressional District. It's to fill the seat left vacant by the death of former Democratic Congressman Don McKeachin. Jennifer McClellan tweeted before the vote voting finished up. In 1890, John Mercer Langston became the first African-American congressman from Virginia representing the 4th District. Today, I'm asking the 4th District to make history again by electing me the first African-American congresswoman from Virginia. And she did win with almost 75% of the vote. 
held her victory party in Richmond. To Shirley Chisholm, John Mercer Lake, Bobby Scott, to Donald McEachin, you helped us make history. years ago sent John Mercer Langston to Congress as the first African-American Virginian. This city helped send the second Bobby Scott and then we sent Donald McEachin. That is quite a legacy and I look forward to building on that legacy. I look forward to taking my 18 years of servant leadership to Washington. We've done a lot of good here in Richmond in the State House whether it was passing the Voting Rights Act, mm. passing the Reproductive Health Act, passing the Virginia Clean Economy, passing the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. All of that, all of that work needs to be done in Washington. And just as I carried those bills across the finish line, I will work to continue that. I will work to make sure that when Virginia did our part, with a multi-generational group of black women led by me, Mamie Locke and Jennifer Kara Floyd made Virginia the 38th state. Congresswoman-elect Jennifer McClellan, Democrat, giving her victory speech Tuesday night in Richmond, Virginia. When she is sworn in, the 118th Congress will increase its records of total women in the House and Senate to 150 women in the U.S. House to 125, and African-American women in the House to 28. Also today, Senator John Tester, Democrat from Montana, tweeting, it's official, I'm running for re-election. Montanans need a fighter that will hold our government accountable and demand Washington stand up for veterans and lower costs for families. I will always fight to defend our Montana values. Let's get to work. Be running in 2024 for a fourth six-year term. Fox News reporting that Senator Tester's seat in a red state where former President Donald Trump topped President Biden by 16 points in 2020 is a top target for Senate Republicans as they aim to win back the chamber's majority in the 2024 election. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. U.S. President Joe Biden, writes Reuters, met leaders of NATO's eastern flank on Wednesday to show support for their security after Moscow suspended a landmark nuclear arms control treaty, which he called a big mistake. President Biden arrived in the Polish capital, Warsaw, late on Monday after a surprise visit to Kiev just days ahead of the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022. Amid the highest tension between Russia and the West since the Cold War over three decades ago, President Biden addressed thousands in downtown Warsaw on Tuesday and said autocrats like Russian President Vladimir Putin must be opposed. That from Reuters. President Biden's comment about Russia making that big mistake came in response to a reporter's question at a photo op with some of the leaders. I don't have time. President Biden there at a photo op in Warsaw saying he doesn't have time to answer the question, but then saying it was a big mistake. 
He also met with the leaders of a group called the Bucharest Nine. That's Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia. That group was formed in 2015 in Bucharest, Romania, following Russia's annexation of the Ukrainian territory Crimea and Russia's supporting separatists in eastern Ukraine. More from the Reuters article, not all of the Bucharest Nine have been quite so ready to aid Ukraine, notably Hungary, which has pushed back on some EU sanctions on Russia and along with Turkey is the only NATO member still to ratify the accession of Sweden and Finland. Before the group leaders met in private, some made some statements, including President Biden. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, and I'm delighted to be here. Some of you may remember uh, years ago when we were expanding NATO, I was the one in the United States Senate was pushing the hardest to expand NATO for membership of many of you sitting around this table. And uh, the irony is that uh, one of the last conversations I had with the uh, our friend in Russia was uh, <clears throat> I said, you keep asking for the Findalization of NATO. You're going to get the NATOization of Finland. Well, it happened. Not only are we as strong as we are, we're stronger. And uh, I say to my fellow presidents that uh, I'm honored to be with you here <clears throat> and uh, so many strong NATO allies. And uh, the Secretary General who I think has done an incredible job, an incredible job for a long time. I uh, rely on his judgment a great deal. You know, the B-9 was founded in 2015 after Russia attempted annexation of Crimea. And today, as we approach the uh, one-year anniversary of Russia's further invasion, it's even more important that we continue to stand together. And I think this is proof of this, how strongly we feel. That's why I wanted to meet all of you in person here today. As NATO's eastern flank, you're on the front lines of our collective defense, and you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world. You know, when um, that's what President Zelensky and I spoke about when I was in Kyiv two days ago. And uh, the leaders around this table have repeatedly stepped up to reaffirm our shared commitment to all these values. We provided critical security assistance to Ukraine and critical support to literally millions of refugees. We've helped ensure Ukrainians can access basic services and together we'll continue our enduring support for Ukraine as they defend their freedom. Over the past year, with your countries, with countries around this table, providing collective leadership, we've also strengthened NATO, a commitment of the United States to NATO. I've said it to you many times, I'll say it again, is absolutely clear. Article 5 is a sacred commitment the United States has made. We will defend literally every inch of NATO, every inch of NATO. And uh, it's this is an important moment. I look forward to the discussion and the next steps we can take together and to keep our alliance strong and to further deter aggression. Because what literally is at stake is not just Ukraine, it's freedom 
the idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country after war, since World War II, nothing like that has happened. Things have changed radically. We have to, we have to make sure we change them back. So thank you all very much for allowing me to be with you. And I look forward to our private discussions. James J. Carafano, vice president of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for National Security, has been following President Biden's trip to Poland and Ukraine ahead of the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Joining us now on the phone. Thank you so much. So if you had to write one headline of the president's trip, what would it be? Yeah, um, this was a photo op. And and I don't mean that in, in any partisan way. I, I, anybody who follows me knows I'm, I'm not a political person. Belong to a political party. I'm in a conservative foundation, but we're not partisan. So I, you know, I just call uh, balls and strikes. And and by the way, I I've I've done this trip. So I did the exact trip that President Biden did several months ago with a, a bunch of other American analysts. We went into Poland, saw the transfer sites for all the U.S. military equipment and how that's all accounted for. We took the the ten hour train ride to Kiev, which is this really kind of semi-cool old Soviet style train. It's a bit like being on the Orient Express and you pull the shades down so you're in darkness the entire way and uh, went to Kiev, went around. Um, so I'm meeting the same things the president did. Uh, also met with President Zelensky for, for about an hour, had a good conversation. So, um, but here's the, here's the deal on this. I mean, to, just to be brutally honest about this, if, if the president really wanted to make a statement that other world leaders have made, about we are with Ukraine and we are sharing own apparel. That would have been an appropriate visit any time, you know, months ago. But essentially, the president has waited really till you know we don't we don't know when the war is going to end or how it's going to end. But it's very clearly that Ukraine is not going to fall. That that the country is going to sustain itself through this offensive, um, and that that you know there's not going to be you know for the, like the reasons they left Afghanistan, some fear that. You, like a Vietnam thing, everything's going to fall apart after I go there. So he goes fairly confident that that's going to happen. And and somewhat reported, not widely reported, but the, the U.S. government actually contact the Russian government beforehand. Said, hey, the president's going to go here. You know, you know pretty, pretty much the conversation is, you know, don't do anything. And they actually got assurances apparently all the way up to Vladimir Putin that no, nothing's going to happen. So it wasn't like the president was going to a war zone. He's still hundreds of miles from the front, and he's at risk. And a siren went off in the president there, but that that's kind of weird because the Russians didn't do anything and, and promised they weren't going to do anything. So it's it almost comes off like getting a permission slip to do this. And so I'm not sure the optics of that were really that great. And and the and the speech in Poland afterward was it was really you know, pretty kind of tame stuff. There were, there were no policy changes. There were no new promises. It was a bunch of rhetoric like, we, you know, we will stand with you. But here's the reality of that is, um, first of all, I, I think in some ways it's a bit jarring to have the president say, well, we will be with you as long as it takes when we did exactly the opposite in Afghanistan. When, when things got tough, we immediately withdrew our troops and watched the country collapse. But all that aside is, they everybody knows America is not going to alleviate its support for the Ukraine. I mean, there's been incredibly strong signals from Republican leadership uh, since after the election that they're all in all the money that needs to be appropriated to carry them through the spring offenses already been allocated. Um, if anything, the only thing that's really slowing down our responses is the administration's 
giving you know more robust weapons like longer range missiles and aircraft to the Ukrainians. So it's not like it's a message anybody like needed to hear. So I think obviously Ukrainians were happy to have it. The Polish government was happy to host it. It demonstrates how important they are in this. But you know, is this you know the Truman Doctrine or Reagan standing in front of the thing saying you know Gorbachev tear down this wall or something? And, and honestly, I think a week from now. That will be something that happened last Tuesday. We're talking with James J. Carafano from the Heritage Foundation. The The news yesterday out of Russian President Vladimir Putin's speech is that Russia is withdrawing from the last U.S.-Russian nuclear weapons agreement. That caused a bit of a stir. What do you make of it? So that, I think, was also a story where it is way less than meets the eye. Uh, as you know, arguing that Biden's uh the trip to Ukraine and his speech was almost not quite on the order of a nothing burger. Um, so the new START treaty it does two things. One is it limits the number of the nuclear weapons that the Russians and the Americans can have. It, it was never a big deal for the Russians because the limit actually allowed the Russians to build more nuclear weapons. Um, it required us to actually get rid of some nuclear weapons. But the other component of the treaty was inspection verification, where essentially you go in and you count things. Like the Russians come in, they count the number of holes we have on the ground, where our missiles are. We go and we count their stuff. Uh, We had always argued that the treaty is kind of also a nothing burger because um, it really doesn't matter what the Russian levels are and the American levels. What's strategically relevant for the United States is how China's nuclear arsenal is building up and and we have to think about how we're going to deal with that. And, of course, China's not a party to the New START Treaty. So we have a treaty w- w- with the Russians on numbers, which really doesn't really matter very much because we almost have the same numbers. And the verification part's not terribly important because we can actually do all that verification with intelligence and we don't actually need the physical inspections all that match. Matter of fact, we've just gotten pretty decent estimates of the Chinese expanding nuclear missile floss, and we don't have an inspection treaty with them. So the U.S. government actually announced, so uh, I guess two weeks ago or last week, that, that uh, Russia was in violation of the treaty. Uh, and so uh, all Putin did was kind of confirm the, the obvious, and he kind of tried to turn it into a, him being tough, right? So it's Somehow it was our fault that he was not being compliant with the treaty. They stopped complying with inspectors coming in when the Ukraine war started. So it was our fault that, that we weren't complying with the treaty. So he was pulling out of it for the defense of Russia somehow. So it's kind of, again, one of these kind of convoluted things that I guess only makes sense if you say them in Russian. But um, in the end, it really doesn't It doesn't mean very much. He also said something in the speech which was interesting. He said, well, we may have to start nuclear testing again um, and if the U.S. is going to do that, which is – it sounds very escalatory, but first of all, the U.S. doesn't – U.S. can do nuclear testing. There, there's only really two prohibitions against nuclear testing. One is not detonating weapons at sea and in the air or above ground, which pretty much everybody signed and everybody is adhered to. Um, even the North Koreans don't do above ground nuclear testing. Um, there's another thing called the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which basically prohibits testing. We never sign that, so we can test whenever we want. Ironically, the Russians did sign the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which makes it sound like you know Putin might break another treaty. But, but again, we we're pretty sure. I mean, this has not never never been fully confirmed. 
that the Russians have been doing low-yield low low nuclear tests for years now, and they're just lying about it. So all we really learned from what we've learned now for a decade, there's not a nuclear treaty that, that, that Putin has actually followed. Um, and, and, and I think the reality of this is, and this has really nothing to do with the Ukraine crisis, is that's not what's going to drive the future of nuclear competition. Because China is never going to agree to a nuclear treaty. And what's really going to drive the competition is how big China's arsenal is, how threatening it is. Um, and, and, and I think we are going to be in a bit of an arms race, not on the level of the Cold War. But, but this is not because of Ukraine. This is largely about China. I think the only place where, you, where this really comes into it is every day Putin fights the war in Ukraine, his conventional military force is less than it was the day before. And the longer he fights, the less it will be. And so as a, a stick to threaten people with, the conventional military force is, is degrading, which means that to be a, a military great power, Putin will put, have to put more and more reliance on this, the strategic deterrent of his nuclear forces. Um, I don't think that means he's going to start World War III, um, but, but that's, you know, he might be, you know, I don't think he's going to get more aggressive or threatening, but he'll, he'll talk about it more. We used to call this atomic diplomacy. And, you know, the United States used to do this in the, in the 1950s before the Soviet Union detonated a nuclear weapon. But it, but it doesn't, you know, threatening people with nuclear holocaust actually doesn't get you very far because, you know, you might wind up in nuclear holocaust too. So um, it's easy to threaten nuclear war, but there's a reason why people don't have them. James J. Carafano, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for National Security. You can find his work at heritage.org and on Twitter. He's at J.J. Carafano. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. President Biden attended Catholic Mass in Poland on this Ash Wednesday. It was a private service in a hotel. A local prominent Polish priest presiding who posted on Facebook, even the most powerful in this world takes ashes if they belong to the Catholic tradition. I had the honor today of placing ashes on the forehead of U.S. President Mr. Joe Biden. Everything took place in great secrecy, but now I can speak. In an improvised chapel next to the president's apartment, we prayed for peace, the conversion of Russia, and the light of the Holy Spirit for Mr. President. The U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice, Beth Van Schock, giving an update today on the U.S. determination that Russia has committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine. That announcement was from Vice President Kamala Harris at the Munich Security Conference in Germany this past weekend. Secretary of State Antony Blinken supporting the vice president's statement and adding that members of Russia's forces have committed execution-style killings of Ukrainian men, women, and children, torture of civilians in detention through beatings, electrocution, and mock executions, Rape and alongside other Russian officials have deported hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian civilians to Russia, including children who have been forcibly separated from their families. That from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. More on all this at today's State Department briefing in Washington, D.C. with Ambassador Ben Schock. I'm wondering if you've already shared um, all of this evidence that you guys collected to make this determination with international bodies and if you haven't done so yet, when you plan to, um, and how quickly you think 
prosecutions could come. I know that's um, probably a hard estimate to make, but is it possible that we see prosecutions while this conflict is ongoing? So there generally are three now active pathways to justice. One is the Office of the Prosecutor General in Ukraine, which is actively pursuing cases. Their courts are open and, and operative, and they've brought a number of cases already. The State Department is supporting the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, which is deploying experts drawn from the world's war crimes tribunals to Kyiv to support their counterparts in that effort. The second pathway to justice is, of course, the International Criminal Court, seized of jurisdiction by virtue of Ukraine's consent to jurisdiction. And then finally, you have a number of European um, law enforcement offices joining together to form a joint investigative team. They're sharing information about potential cases with an eye towards bringing cases in European courts. And there are a number of investigations that are happening around the world as well. Our own Department of Justice has produced, has created the War Crimes Accountability Team, the so-called WarCat. They're focused on this new legislation that Congress has given us. So there are a number of different pathways whereby information can be shared in order to support accountability. Have you already shared the evidence that you guys collected for this determination? We don't, all three of those? We don't tend to discuss exactly what information gets shared, but know that we are trying to support accountability wherever it is being pursued. And then just to clarify, um, so prosecutions, additional prosecutions could come, you know, obviously before the conflict is over, given what you've just described there. As the this is the assumption. I mean, besides the cases happening in Ukrainian courts, we know that the ICC is fully seized of this and then this joint investigative team as well. The challenge will be, of course, getting custody of accused. And while individuals remain within Russia, they will probably enjoy impunity because there is no international police force who can go and, and make those arrests. Sure. U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice, Beth Van Schock at the State Department with reporters. Another story from Reuters. President Vladimir Putin said on Wednesday that China's Xi Jinping would visit Russia, saying relations had reached new frontiers. Amid U.S. concerns, Beijing could provide material support to the invasion of Ukraine. And over the past, this past weekend, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield warning that China is considering sending lethal aid to Russia to use in the war in Ukraine. This came up today at the Pentagon briefing with the Deputy Press Secretary, Sabrina Singh. Uh, China's top diplomat in Moscow uh, meeting with Putin, he had said that uh, the relationship between Beijing and Moscow was rock solid and, quote, would withstand any test in a changing international situation. I was curious from the Pentagon standpoint, the concern of this strengthening tie between Russia and China. Well, these are sovereign countries able to make their own sovereign decisions, but um, we have certainly made clear, not just um, from here, but other agencies and, and the White House, um, that there will certainly be consequences for China should they um, deepen their relationship with Russia. Now, we haven't seen them give lethal aid to Russia at this time uh, for the war, but they haven't also taken that off the table. And so um, we have been consistent from here, and I believe Secretary Blinken also met with his counterpart um, in Germany just last week. Um, we reinforced there that, again, there will be consequences for China should this partnership with Russia uh, further deepen. And then any comment on, uh, you know, Putin saying that they were going to suspend the nuclear arms control deal as well? Well, we certainly think it's unfortunate from, from the department's perspective. We think it's irresponsible. Um, 
any nuclear power uh, has to behave in a responsible manner, and we certainly take our obligations under, under the New START Treaty seriously. And um, as the Secretary has said before, we're going to continue to monitor this and continue to fulfill our obligations. Sabrina Singh is the Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary. Her news conference today in the Pentagon Briefing Room. This is Washington Today. From Associated Press, Israeli troops on Wednesday entered a major Palestinian city in the occupied West Bank in a rare daytime arrest operation, triggering fighting that killed at least 10 Palestinians and wounded scores of others. The raid, which reduced a building to rubble and left a series of shops riddled with bullets, was one of the bloodiest battles in nearly a year of fighting in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, talked about this without even getting a question from a reporter. The United States is extremely concerned by the levels of violence in Israel and the West Bank. Today in Nablus, at least 10 Palestinians, including both militants and civilian bystanders, were killed and over 100 injured during an, an, an Israel Defense Forces counterterrorism operation. We wish a speedy recovery to those injured and our hearts go out to the families of the innocent bystanders who were killed today. We recognize the very real security concerns facing Israel. At the same time, we are deeply concerned by the large number of injuries and the loss of civilian lives. We had productive conversations in recent days with the parties and U.S. regional partners in support of efforts to prevent further violence. We are deeply concerned that the impact of today's raid could set back efforts aimed at restoring calm for both Israelis and Palestinians. Today's events further underscore the urgent need for both sides to work together to improve the security situation in the West Bank. We also call on all parties to desist from actions that inflame tensions, such as incitement to violence, evictions of families from their homes, demolitions, settlement advancements, and the legalization of outposts. Israelis and Palestinians, as we have consistently said, equally deserve to live in safety and security. State Department spokesperson Ned Price at the beginning of his briefing with reporters. An update from the New York Times, a spokesman for the Israeli Army, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Heck, said that the bloodshed on Wednesday began after troops entered Nablus to arrest members of the Lion's Den, a local armed group that emerged last year and that has been partly responsible for a spike in Palestinian violence. Colonel Heck said the group was planning imminent assaults and was also responsible for an attack that killed an Israeli soldier in October while he was patrolling a nearby part of the northern West Bank. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day by subscribing to C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word. You can sign up at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. Next, four conversations from C-SPAN series of over 40 interviews with new members of the 118th Congress. C-SPAN spoke with the new members about their upbringings, careers, and political philosophies. Republican Anthony Desposito represents the Long Island, New York district where he grew up and is one of nearly 80 new U.S. House members in the 118th Congress. Before getting into politics, he served as a New York City police officer. He told C-SPAN about the role of his parents and faith in shaping his political philosophy. I think it comes from growing up in a, in a small community, um, parents that worked really hard. My mom uh, you know, came here from 
uh, Puerto Rico with her parents at uh, the age of two uh, with her seven siblings, settled in uh, Island Park, the same community that I live in now. Uh, my dad born and raised uh, in Rockaway Beach and then uh, was uh, a boater, loved the water and uh, met my mom in Island Park. They've lived there for uh, close to 50 years. Uh, and it's just a community of hardworking blue collar people who um, care about uh, their pocketbooks, who want people that are going to represent them that have the same values as they do. Uh, a lot of volunteerism, people from the volunteer fire service, people involved in the Kiwanis and the Chamber, uh, people that just want their community to be the best that it can be but want uh, leadership that's going to respect them. What role did faith play? in your childhood and in your life? Uh, so yeah, I grew up in, a, like I said, a small community of Island Park. It's one of those places where, uh, you know, if you walk down the, uh, the street and do something wrong, everyone knows within five minutes, you know, and that was before Facebook. So um, it, it's a small community uh, with, a, I think, uh, our church. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, uh, went to church every Sunday. I was an altar server. Um, our church is, you know, like a, a small beacon in our community. Uh, I went to Catholic high school, an old boys Catholic high school, Chaminade High School in Mineola. Um, so faith has been a part of, uh, of my life from day one. It's something that, uh, you know, I lean on each and every day, especially now. Um, but uh, yeah, faith has always been a part. And, and it's, I think it's not only my faith, you know, I've uh, had the opportunity to represent um, a diverse community uh, both now and, and prior to being a member of the Hempstead Town Board. Uh, a very large group of Orthodox, uh, Jew Orthodox Jews and um, I think it's just faith in general. It's respecting other people's faith, their traditions, um, and I think that makes a well-rounded, well-respected uh, elected official. How do you lean on your faith every day? Uh, I think it's one of those things where when you're going to say something, you kind of, well, I always think, the, the people say count to three, I say a Hail Mary. So this way, I, I know I don't say anything terribly wrong, but um, I, I think it's just something that um, referring back to growing up and the way I was raised, and again, going to Mass and the lessons learned, going to Catholic school, um, it's just, you know, sort of taking that deep breath and being one with your inner self and really... Uh, trying to go to bed each and every night, laying my head on my pillow, knowing that I did the best I possibly could for everyone that I represent. Do you have a phrase that your parents said or somebody said in your childhood that you still fall back on today? So I have two. My, my grandfather uh, was a, a proud uh, American. He was a World War II veteran. Um, he lived to uh, 96 years old, only lost him a few years ago. Uh, and he always told all his grandchildren, uh, always leave things better than you found them. And that's one thing that, uh, that's an adage that I take with me every day. And the second is uh, at Chaminade, we had a motto that a Chaminade man does the right thing for the right reasons at the right time, regardless of who's watching. And I think uh, both of those I take to not only the halls of Congress, but my everyday life. Who or what sparked your interest in public office? Uh, I think it was a, a sort of a, a group effort, I guess. Um, you know, my parents were involved locally. My dad uh, served as the deputy mayor of, of our village for a long time, um, always involved in the community. Uh, I grew up just houses away from uh, Senator Alphonse D'Amato. So, um, and I came from a community that uh, was, was pretty active politically. So I think it was just uh, sort of in my blood and in the water. You talked politics then growing up. That's for sure, yeah. Talk politics. Uh, we have a, a small local beach in Iowa Park, uh, Masson Beach, and uh, it's, you know, 
at the barbecue grills every Sunday. That was uh, politics was definitely one of the conversations. What were the conversations like? Well, it spanned everything from locally to uh, you know to national news. I mean, who would have ever thought in 1980 that a, a young guy from again we sort of followed in the same footsteps both members of the Hempstead Town Board, but in 1980, nobody thought that a, a young Italian-American from Island Park uh, could be a member of the United States Senate. And I don't think anyone thought in 2022 that a young Italian-Puerto Rican-American from Island Park would make it to U.S. Congress. Was he your political hero, Senator? Uh, I think he just, uh, he's one of those people who, you know, we don't agree on everything, that's for sure. Um, but uh, he's one of those guys that um, never forgot where he came from. And that's something that's so important to me. I mean, um, as much as I love being here, I look forward to getting on that plane and he heading home so I could be in the communities that I represent. And, um, you know, back in the, I guess, in the, the mid 80s, he was uh, given the, the name or the, the nickname uh, Senator Pothole because he focused on everything, not just stuff here on the Hill, but stuff that was uh, close to home. And I think that that's something that speaks volumes of someone. And, and that's the same way that I've always been. Um, I always feel that when someone calls your office as an elected official, uh, whatever they're calling about, whether it is uh, a, a pothole or getting their snow plowed or their garbage picked up, or it's a bigger issue, at that point, it's the most important issue to them. So it should be the most important one to you. Do you have a political mentor? Uh, I think I have many. You know, I, I, I look at uh, growing up, my dad was a hard worker, even though it was local politics. Uh, he was someone that was in it for the right reasons. Um, you know, I, I speak regularly with uh, Congressman Peter King, who represented Long Island for a long time. And he was one of those guys who, um, you know, even if he bucked his own party, he did it because he delivered for Long Island. And I think that's important. Um, Obviously, we've you know we've seen some great presidents in the past. I think Ronald Reagan was someone that we could all uh, aspire to be. So I have, uh, and, and even Democrats, I, I always uh, refer to uh, Tip O'Neill's uh, book, uh, "All Politics Are Local," because that's the truth. If we if we don't involve everyone locally, um, we're not going to make it here to Capitol Hill. What did you do before you came to Congress? Uh, before I came to Congress, I was uh, a Town of Hempstead councilman f uh, since 2016. So the Town of Hempstead is a pretty big place. It's uh, the largest town in the nation. We're bigger than seven states. Uh, we have about a population of 800,000 and a, a budget of about a half a billion. So it was a pretty big operation. Uh, and before that, I was a proud member of the New York City Police Department, where I retired as a detective. Tell us about that experience and how it shapes you, impacts you today as a member of Congress. Yeah, so I worked, uh, I spent my entire career in Brooklyn North, Brownsville, which is probably the most violent square mile in the city or one of the most violent and probably one of the top 10 most violent square miles, I would say, in the country. Um, and I always worked in sort of a team-based atmosphere. Um, and I worked and sat in a car with um, men and women from you know, different, co different color skin, different religions, different uh, economic backgrounds. They grew up very differently than me, certainly different political ideologies, but my life depended on them and their life depended on me. Uh, and you really learn to compromise, you learn to talk, you learn to respect other people's um, beliefs. And the same with dealing you know, with uh, people on the streets. You know, I, I was always told uh, as a young cop that regardless of how cold it is at night or how hot it is during a summer day, you always ride around with your windows down so you could hear the streets and smell the streets. And uh, that's something that I think I've brought to government and politics. You know, I, I always 
have my windows down. I always want to hear from the people that I represent. And I think that uh, that's been indicative of, of my career. You know, my last election as a town of Hempstead councilman, I won with 70% of the vote. Um, when I took this uh, seat back, um, you know, Democrats had held it for 25 years. It was a seat that Joe Biden won by 16 and a half points, and we won it by four. So I think it was the largest flip in the nation. Um, and that wasn't won just because Republicans and conservatives voted for me. It was won because uh, people from all parties trusted me and, and believed in me. How are you adjusting to Washington? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's been a, 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 an interesting couple of weeks, to say the least. You know, um, my entire, you know, my family, friends were here uh, for what we thought was going to be a celebratory swearing in. And then uh, I think, um, you know, on late Friday night, I was sworn in at 2 a.m., uh, the only person left with my brother. So uh, it definitely wasn't the swearing in that we expected, but we're, uh, we're getting comfortable. Um, you know, I've been assigned uh, my first two committees, Homeland Security and Transportation and Infrastructure, which were my top two picks. So I'm, I'm happy to be, uh, be a part of that. I'm looking forward to working with, with colleagues on both sides of the aisle again to deliver for Long Island. Democrat Eric Sorensen was no stranger to TV cameras before winning the race to represent the 17th Congressional District of Illinois in the 118th Congress. He used to work as a local meteorologist near his home in Moline, Illinois. He told C-SPAN about how that work helps him as a congressman and how he first got into television. I was. I was the chief meteorologist at the TV station that um, my family watched growing up, and, and then I moved to the next town over, uh, to Moline, Illinois, and uh, I put roots down in the community, became the meteorologist that was known not only to track the tornadoes, to chase the tornadoes, but also to tell the kids when they didn't have school because it was snowy. And little did I know, through all of this time as a broadcast meteorologist, I was working in the same congressional district. What did you like about being a meteorologist? The great thing is it changes every day. Um, and a lot of times when I went and talked to, to kids, to school kids about meteorology is we live in different weather every day. Um, I like to say that you know, for kids, when they think about what they want to do when they grow up, is to think about doing something that they're not going to be bored with. Right? And, I, and I point to their teachers a lot saying, you know, you kids are, are, are different every day, right? So a teacher's job is going to be very interesting. Um, and a meteorologist's job is different every day. You had a nickname, TV Eric? Right, right. Explain. Yeah, so being the, the person named Eric, um, it kind of goes back to when I was growing up. Um, I was afraid of storms. I, I was afraid as I learned of tornadoes. The, um, the part of the Wizard of Oz that, that was really the scariest um, wasn't that Dorothy was going off to a far off land, it was that a tornado hit her home. And so the person that gave me the security as a kid, his name was Eric. Eric Nefstead did the weather on Channel 13. Um, he was TV Eric. And so that was the person that I strived to be. And it took a long time, hard work, determination, but then I got to be the TV Eric on channel 13. How do you go from the local weatherman to the congressman? Right. Um, I think a lot has to be said about people that are representing their communities that have already earned the trust of the people. Um, and I think it's different than saying that I got the weather right every day. Um, it's that people could trust me for what I was saying. I was taking something as complex as the atmospheric physics and explaining not just a 20% chance of rain, but why is there a 20% chance of rain? 
Why are we seeing more floods than we have seen before? Um, it's explaining these things such that people are going to understand them, but then people are going to remember it. So you had trust when you ran for this office. Right. What else did your career in meteorology teach you or train you right. for being a member of Congress? Well, I think there's not only trust, but there is this open dialogue of communication. And not only have I heard that from the people in the district of Northwestern and Central Illinois, um, but there's a disconnect. Um, a lot of people at back home, they say, well, there isn't enough communication uh, between Washington and Rock Falls, Illinois, or between Washington and Bloomington, Illinois. Um, and, and I really think that we need to change that. We need to make sure that people understand, you know, what's going on. And, and how I know that, I was in a grocery store and a lady came up to me and she said, Eric, I miss how you used to explain how the weather works. And I said, oh, thank you, thank you. And then she goes, well, you need to get to Congress so you can explain to us how Congress works, right? So that told me, what does this lady want in her next congressperson? She wants somebody to explain it to her. And that's the thing that's different here. During the campaign, you had another nickname. Yeah. What was it and why? Yeah, it was Tornado. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, all of our campaign staff, when it was on the move, the tornado's on the move, or when I got to a place, the tornado's touched down. Um, and so, so that was great. And it was unique because um, we could have a little bit of fun with this. Um, there was already a connection with the communities. Um, and also, um, this was a unique space because we haven't had a meteorologist in Congress in 50 years, right? Um, and so this really allowed us to communicate, make, the, make it so that people understood why the meteorologist is running, and yeah, I want to support that guy. Do your colleagues out here rely on the meteorologist in Congress? <laughs> right. There are so many elevator rides on Capitol Hill, as we all know, right? Um, but it's also when you get in a, into a, um, an elevator, it's, Eric, when's the rain going to stop? Well, about 3 p.m. You got another hour. <laughs> and so, so you still check the weather. Sure. You're still looking into it. Sure, absolutely. I've got more apps on my phone, so there will always be an accurate forecast. Now, when there is a Codel to uh, the Middle East or you know to somewhere on a far off continent, I'm going to have to do a little bit more work for that. Have you been able to bond with other members of Congress, get to know right. some new people and make some friends? Right. I think one of the greatest things for me that people may not know is that especially in the orientation period, um, it was after the election, before swearing in, it was, we were all together as freshmen. And it was talking with people on the other side of the aisle because we didn't have any skin in the game yet. And to be able to talk with some moderate Republicans, I was the guy that was talking climate to farmers, right? And they understand what's going on, and we need to work together because it's not just the farmers in my district, it's the growers in your district, it's the ranchers in your district, and all of our constituents need to make sure that we're working for them. And then it was this eye-opening thing for a lot of you know, these moderate Republicans that, hey, I want to work with this meteorologist because he's going to be focused on data, value, and science and not politics. Republican Max Miller is one of nearly 80 new U.S. House lawmakers in the 118th Congress, and he represents Ohio's 7th District. While most of his family growing up identified as Democrats, he told C-SPAN about how older family members and military service influenced his conservative political philosophy, and about a grandmother who once ran for Congress. It was my bubby, uh, Ruth Ratner Miller, 
1980 in what I believe was the 22nd district uh, at the time of Cleveland. Um, I, I actually I don't know if I share any of my current district with her previous one that she ran in. We may or we may not. I would assume that we may uh, a little bit of territory. But what I can tell you is this is, uh, you know, my grandmother, she ran and I know that she was the favorite at the time. Uh, unfortunately, I know it didn't work out for her. But if she was still around today, I would hope that she'd be very proud of everything that we were able to accomplish. And, and really, um, you know, this victory is for the constituency and that's where it should be shared with. But, you know, I, I do give a lot to my puppy who ran in 1980. Thank you for asking that question. Sounds like you had a relationship with her. What impact did she have on you? I did. Unfortunately, I, you know, I, she passed away when I was very young, but what I can tell you about my Bubby is that she's the one who kept the family together. I can tell you that she was the first person who took me on an airplane when I was a very little kid uh, to go see my, my aunt and uncle out in Boston. It was the simple things that she did, and it, I know a lot of people don't know of her or about her, but she was very meaningful to the city of Cleveland and to the state of Ohio and all the contributions that she made and worked tirelessly on. I mean, she tried to rehab Tower City, the terminal tower as we call it in Cleveland, and unfortunately we could never get it to a point where it was gonna be economically sustainable for the city and for the company to have. But she did so much more than that. She was a leader for the Jewish community and she was a leader for women as well. I mean, once again, running in 1980 as a Republican woman in the city of Cleveland in itself is, is a very tough challenge, but she did so graciously and, and throughout her entire life. So for the years that I was around to get to be around her, uh, it was some of the greatest times of my life. Explain your Republican roots. Yeah. Where does it come from? It comes from my grandmother, believe it or not, and I come from a very Democrat family. Um, I would say that 98% of my family, maybe even 99% are Democrats, and that's, that's great. Um, and, and I respect her values and opinions, but really, when my grandmother ran for Congress, she changed her voter registration to Republican. And so did my grandfather at the time, uh, Sam. And they're the ones who really instilled the conservative values within our family and the Miller family. And it was, you know, passed on to my father, and my father passed it on to me. And I understand I'm a little unorthodox compared to the rest of my family, or um, maybe really anyone, you know, who is Jewish in, in my district or demographic area. Um, but, you know, I'm also a United States Marine, um, and that meant a lot to myself as well growing up and my family. So, you know, it just means a lot. When did you serve? I uh, enlisted in 2013 in the reserves and I got out in 2019 Then I moved to the IRR. What were your responsibilities when you were in the Marine? Where, where did you serve? Yeah, I never did any combat deployments. The bulk of my time was at Kilo Company 325 uh, in uh, North for Sales in Pittsburgh and I was infantry. I chose to make the decision to enlist with a college degree because I wanted the same experience as every other Marine, not to mention that every leader that I talked to, they said, if you want to be the best officer, then you should, you should enlist first. And so that's what I did, but I found myself liking the rigorous program and the, and the training that was brought forward to us. And that, you know, I'm no different than anyone else. And this country gave so much to my family and to myself that I felt it was only right that I also do the same thing and enlist to, to support this country and to fight during a time of war. What did you do after the military? Yeah, uh, after the military, I was going to get an MBA at Baldwin-Wallace and you know, decided not to pursue that into volunteering politics. And I started volunteering on city council races full time and, and really investing all of my effort and time into that. And then 2015 came around and I volunteered for then Senator Rubio. And I wasn't getting paid. And I just one day kind of looked at the Senator after about three or four months, I believe it was three. And I said, well, if I'm any good at my job, will you hire me? And he looked at me and he gave me a pat and he was like, all right, Max, welcome to the team. 
And that's where I kind of got my real first start within politics, was working for Senator Rubio. And to make a long story short, in February 2016, I decided that that was no longer the best place for me or the right fit. And I went to then go work for Mr. Trump. And that's how that relationship blossomed. And I was able to then go into the White House and, uh, you know, really proud of the work that we were able to accomplish there. But being, you know, one of the youngest director of advances in White House history, uh, working hand in hand, you know, being in areas in foreign countries that you wouldn't, you know, wish on your worst enemy. We were in North Korea for several hours negotiating with the North Korean delegation uh, with a very small party from the United States, uh, which is very sensitive. They also threw me in Iraq, uh, bouncing back and forth between Erbil and al-Assad and Afghanistan as well. So all of these experiences that I've had throughout my life, and especially, I would say, not the last, uh, minus the last two years, but really the last four years, have brought us to this point now to where we're in Congress. We understand what is going on here. We've done all the great things that this city has to offer in terms of dinner parties and, and chopping it up with, you know, with, with those subset of people, but we're here to work. And that experience and that knowledge of being, you know, talking to the president almost every day, working with cabinet secretaries and other legislators who are already here, who I have existing relationships with, I believe is going to set ourselves apart and be more ready for the challenge that's going to come ahead when we're dealing with these tough negotiations because we've already been in the pressure cooker. We understand how we can maintain our bearing and professionalism while having civil discourse with the other side and really just negotiating that, you know, we can find a compromise and one does exist. And once we, you know, realize that not everyone is the enemy and we're all Americans with different ideological beliefs and this country will be a better place, and that's hoping what we, can, you know, what we can do and bring forward here in this Congress. You were how old when you were working for the president? And explain to people who aren't familiar with the responsibilities of being the advanced person. Yeah. What you what you had to do. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, I first started working in the White House. I believe I was 27 years old. Uh, by the time I was director of advance, I believe I was 29, or I had just turned 30 at the time. Um, yeah, 30. I was probably 30 or 31 actually. And what that job entails as a director of advance is I oversee all of the president's movements and operational movements and logistics. So I'd be working with the White House military office and the Secret Service six days out from his eventual trip, if that was domestic, where you'd oversee roughly around 250 to 500 people, depending on the threat assessment level or the event production quality. And then overseas travel as well, it would be double the amount of people you had to oversee and then more serious negotiations with foreign delegations. So we would send a very small party ahead of time with myself included to go negotiate those terms with foreign delegations and with prime ministers and with presidents to make sure that when the president arrived to their country that everything was going to flow smooth and we can have bilateral meetings set up and substantive conversation that is going to make this world a better place. So when it comes to you know helicopters and landing zones and figuring out an LZ and then finding a motorcade route and looking at wheels up to wheels down on Comet or Air Force One or anything like that. We oversaw uh, every aspect like that. So there's much more in to advance than just the event production quality. You know, you always want to make the president look presidential to the American people and more so to the world because we are still the greatest power that we have on this planet. And more so, it's just everything else that ties into it. So thank you. What role did you play on January 6th? 
2021? Were you at the White House and were you the advanced person? What role did you play that day? Yeah, uh, I've given my full testimony to the January 6th committee to be clear. My deposition is fully released uh, and everything I've given to that committee, they've not picked up any criminal referrals because I didn't do anything wrong. A uh, function of my job was a senior advisor to the president. I was there on that day. And in my deposition, you can read that I had subsequently left that rally 15 minutes into it because I served no purpose. Uh, I really was not instrumental, and I believe that the, the select committee that was designed to investigate January 6th has already looked into me in every which way possible and has deemed that I have not done anything to make sure that, you know, I've done anything to be a threat to democracy. But I will say that I believe that the January 6th committee in its entirety um, was not a serious committee nor based off a serious investigation to find out the truth. And that I will say. I think it was more done for a prime time hour. Uh, when you hire an ABC producer, I believe that what it was, to put it on at 7 p.m. in the evening to highlight something, I believe that that's just them trying to elevate their platform. If this investigation would have been given to somebody, you know, somebody else or a different jurisdiction or the Department of Justice, I would have taken it a lot more seriously than what they currently put a lot of people through who spent a lot of money, um, who currently are not in a good financial situation from the overreach of government, in my opinion. So you had to have lawyers and pay for that. I did. I did. And, uh, you know, in my case, I was okay. Um, but for the majority of individuals that I work with, and that I deal with, they are not okay. Um, and the harassment just isn't from people, you know, who you know work for the president, who are there. You also have civilians, um, you know, who are also being brought under investigations for some things. Look, if you did something wrong, you're going to be held accountable, and you're going to go to prison, and you should be. But if you did nothing wrong, it doesn't mean that you should be harassed and to spend your own personal money and being harassed by the federal government and what I believe is a complete weaponization of Congress. So. Have you heard from the former president since you won this seat and since you were sworn in and any advice he gave you? Yeah, I've, uh, I've seen him several times and I talk to him probably about twice a week still. Uh, and his advice is always the same is just keep your head down and keep moving and ignore the noise. Um, I mean, he, it's the same advice every time. But when I talk to him, it's not always about politics. And I think there's a big misconception. You know, when he calls me, he says, hey, how's your wife, Emily? Right. How's your family doing? More importantly, how are you doing? Those are the kind, type of conversations that I usually have with them. Uh, and of course, sometimes it'll be about politics, uh, as, as it always will be with the president. Uh, but that being said, you know, him and I were developed a very you know, trusting relationship with one another. Uh, he relied on me and I relied on him. And, you know, I'm proud to have his endorsement. I've already supported him again for his presidential run. Uh, you know, with that being said, I believe that you know, the constituency has seen me for who I am and my own beliefs and our own legislative priorities, separate from President Trump, but he will always have my support. Democrat Kevin Mullen is the new representative for California's 15th Congressional District, one of nearly 80 new House members in the 118th Congress. He told C-SPAN about the advice his predecessor, former Representative Jackie Speer, gave him coming into the job and about what he was doing in state and local government before being elected to Congress. So I was a California State Assembly member. I was the Speaker Pro Tem of our California State Assembly, the number two officer in the Assembly uh, for 10 years. And prior to that, I was a city council member and mayor in the city of South San Francisco, which uh, we like to remind people is the birthplace of biotechnology. Uh, if you fly out of SFO, uh, you'll see South San Francisco, the industrial city, big white letters uh, on our sign hill. Uh, that is my hometown, and I was a small business owner before that. Um, I had a small communications uh, business, and I was a legislative aide 
uh, to Jackie Speer, my predecessor in Congress, uh, when she was a state legislator. I worked for her as an aide. Did she give, any, give you any advice when you decided to run for this seat? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there was no shortage of advice, thankfully, uh, from Congresswoman Jackie Speer. She uh, is an icon on the San Francisco Peninsula, uh, given her uh, 40 years of public life. She's got an incredible personal uh, story. Uh, she is a household name, to say the least. And uh, frankly, it was surprising uh, to everybody, frankly, when she announced her retirement. Uh, she suggested, suggested that I run. Uh, she had been watching me not only uh, for my days as an aide to her, but uh, as a state assembly member, state legislator in my own right. And she thought I was a worthy successor. Uh, so I decided to run. And uh, really what motivated me was democracy issues, elections issues. I've done a lot of work on those issues in the California legislature. And uh, our democracy uh, is hanging in the balance here in Washington, D.C., and that's why I decided to run. But uh, I have sought her counsel and will continue to do so as I get my footing here as a, as a freshman in this big institution. Have you always been interested in politics and holding public office? Uh, not always, although I am the product uh, of some kitchen table conversations. My mother, when I was growing up, was a Republican. Uh, my father, a government teacher, is a civil rights uh, era liberal uh, government teacher, believed in civic participation. So undoubtedly that uh, rubbed off on me um, and continue to be interested in uh, civic uh, matters, obviously, as I find myself here at the Capitol. But uh, way back when I was a mobile DJ, uh, actually had the uh, the DJ nickname Cutmaster Kevy Kev, if you can believe that. I wanted to be a club <laughs> DJ, uh, wanted to mix records and uh, uh, be a radio uh, DJ. That didn't pan out, <laughs> so I found myself uh, starting a small business and eventually uh, finding my way into politics. But clearly being the son of a government teacher who had the C-SPAN school bus, by the way, uh, come to his classroom uh, way back when, uh, certainly that rubbed off and it's part of my, my DNA. Mom's still a Republican? Always a Republican? My mom is no longer with us. She did, however, convert to become a Democrat during the Clinton era. She loved Bill Clinton and became a Democrat. So there was some uh, unified uh, Democratic uh, discussion uh, from that point forward. Where do you trace your Democratic roots to? I mean, why are you a Democrat? Well, I, I believe in the role of government uh, in, in helping people, uh, basically, uh, public investment, I think, is is crucial to building a better America. I think uh, growing up in my father's household where civic engagement and the role of participating in one's government uh, was so central, I think that really uh, made me a Democrat. I think over time I saw just the role uh, that government could play in a positive way in people's lives uh, in, in, as we deal with these economic challenges. Uh, uh, working people and lower income individuals who, who need assistance from the government. Um, I, I think that the civic participation piece uh, is really at the core of why I'm a Democrat. In inclusive government, uh, participation in government, participation in voting, lowering the barriers uh, to participation uh, in our democracy. Uh, that is all uh, why I became a Democrat at 18 and I'm still a Democrat. Favorite artist, music. Favorite music artist? <laughs> That's a challenging question. To um, the former because DJ. I have so many. You know, <laughs> I, I'm so old school. Um, 
Uh, I'm going to go back to my, my early DJ days and run DMC, which the, the younger staff here may not even uh, know that reference. Uh, but uh, I was, when I began my DJ work as a mobile DJ, uh, inspired by Run DMC and some of the uh, early hip hop that dates back to the 80s now. So uh, that's, uh, that's before their uh, generation, but uh, we'll, we'll go with that one for right now. I would say more broadly, uh, U2 uh, is my favorite band of all time and uh, hope to see them. I think they're back out on the road pretty soon. So. I look forward to seeing them. You can find all our interviews with new members of Congress at c-span.org slash congress hyphen new hyphen members.